Well, good morning, beautiful people of Alliance Fellowship. Like I said, my name is Nick. I get to be the pastor here, and I get to share with you the Word of God. Um, we are going to continue on in the book of Revelation. Uh, I was reading this week, sometimes things can be very difficult to understand, especially if you only hear them once and you don't write them down. So uh, these are some real misunderstandings that kids had after hearing a Bible story. You might uh, connect with this. Uh, one kid said that Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. Yes, Joan, everyone knows Joan of Arc, Noah's wife, makes sense. Samson slew the Philistines with the Acts of the Apostles. It's a good one. Moses climbed Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments. And the, the Fifth Amendment is humor your mother and father. And it's a good one. Uh, unfortunately, Moses died before he was able to reach Canada. And the men that followed Jesus were the 12 decibels, and their wives were the epistles. Everyone knows that. And finally, and my favorite, Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. And I'm sure people wondered, like, wow, that guy really loves porcupines. Sometimes it can be difficult to understand things, and God doesn't want us to misunderstand Revelation, even though it is a difficult book to grasp onto. He wants us to understand it as clearly as we can, and so he gives this message straight to John, and he tells John, write down exactly what's taking place, and then send it out to the churches so that they can understand what is happening as well. And so we get this revelation from Jesus, from God, so that we, his servants, can have an understanding of what is to come in the future. And one of the main purposes of this letter is also so that we might be encouraged, not just us, but the original audience that are going through incredible difficult times of uh, pressure and, and violence and all sorts of things, and, and God knows these people need encouragement. God knows that we need encouragement, especially if you are a Montana State Bobcats football fan today. You might need some encouragement. I'm with you. Hey, you made it to the national championship. That one was a little painful for me because I used to live in North Dakota, and NDSU fans are awful. Like, they are the most arrogant fans in the world, and so I was really hoping the Bobcats could do it, but... It didn't go well, but you might need encouragement today for many reasons, and so we're going to continue this journey through Revelation. Last week, we talked about just some basic background information. If you weren't with us, or if you just need a quick uh, refresher, the background information, the, the book is called Revelation. It is not Revelations. It is a singular revelation of God about Jesus Christ. Revelation, the word in Greek, is the word apocalypse. We hear that word and we think, oh no, chaos and destruction, but that's not what apocalypse actually means. It means unveiling. It means there was something hidden, there was some truth that we did not know, and now there is this apocalypse, there is this unveiling like a bride of a truth that was previously unknown, and now God is showing us what is to come. The human author of the book inspired by God and his vision, is most likely the Apostle John. 
The same John that walked with Jesus through his earthly ministry. The same John that was a part of Jesus' inner circle of three of the disciples who were kind of his best friends. He spent his life with Jesus. He spent 60 years since then serving Jesus. And now he finds himself on the island of Patmos. And it's a penal colony. He's basically a prisoner and yet still despite the fact that he's a man in his 80s or 90s at this point, who's living in the dirt, possibly in a labor camp, we don't know for sure, possibly facing the abuse of Roman soldiers, still, despite all of that, he is writing a book to encourage other believers. And that's amazing. The book is written specifically to the seven churches of Asia Minor. But in a more wide sense, it's written to the complete church which means us today, them then, every follower of Christ who ever was or will be in every part of the world is the complete church. And Revelation is a letter to all of us. And then last week we started just by looking at the first eight verses. We saw the primary focus of this book is what? Jesus. Right? That's always the answer in church. Don't you guys know that yet? Jesus. He is the primary focus. Even though Martin Luther thought, eh, it doesn't talk about Jesus enough. I don't know what he was reading because the whole book is about Jesus. It's about the unveiling of this revelation of Jesus. And it's a letter that was written to the church so that they could be comforted in a time of persecution. And letting us know that Jesus will come again to judge the earth and to restore the kingdom of God. In that last verse of Last week, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says clearly, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty, which is our word, Pantocrator, the Almighty God. Jesus tells John very plainly, I am God. I am the Almighty God. There will be people that will tell you, well, the Bible never actually says that Jesus is God. I don't know, again, what book they're reading. He's pretty clear. I am the Almighty. The first and last, who was and is and ever shall be. And so, he's writing this, le- this message in the original audience, they need encouragement. Much more than a football team losing, they need encouragement. This is a church... A generation has passed since Jesus left. Pastors are being banished to islands. Some are being martyred. Jerusalem has been destroyed by Rome. And most of the apostles are gone now. They need to be reminded that though Jesus is not with them in the flesh, Jesus is not gone. And the message has not changed. They need to be reminded of who Jesus really is And that message is going to continue to grow as we continue on in chapter 1. We're going to see even more the power and the glory of Jesus. And so we're going to start this morning by reading a big chunk. We're going to finish up chapter 1. So we're going to read Revelation 1, 9 through 20. And then we're going to break it down. So if you're with you here, if you have a Bible device or it's on the screen, read with me. Revelation 1, 9 through 20. I, John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. 
was on an island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands there was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, there's so much to unpack there. Right at the beginning, I love how John introduces himself. He says, I, I'm John, I'm your brother, and I am a partner in your tribulation. I'm a partner in the difficult times that are going on. I love this because John could have introduced himself and be like, hi, I'm a disciple of Jesus. In fact, I'm not just one of his disciples, I'm one of his three favorite disciples. I was part of his inner circle. In fact, not only that, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, yes, I said that about myself, but still, it's true. He could have said any of those things, but instead of breaking his arm, patting himself on the back, he just says, I'm John. I'm your brother. And I'm right in the midst of this with you. All this persecution that's going on, all the difficulty in this life, I am right here with you. In fact, I'm, I'm on an island because of it. I was banished to an island because of what is happening in our world right now. Because remember, John is writing to this church that is being persecuted heavily. The Roman emperor at this time is a man named Domitian. And he is persecuting the church because they refused to worship him as Lord and God. He was demanding all of the subjects of Rome would worship him. Not just worship him as an emperor, but to literally say, you are Lord and God. And I want you to make sacrifices in your homes to me. And the Christian said, we can't do that. And so he starts to persecute them with violence and imprisonment and some even death. One of the Roman historians, Tacitus, said that Christians were a class hated for their abominations. Being a Christian was considered an abomination to the Roman Empire. Some Romans even called Christians, this is funny, they called Christians atheists. Because the Christians rejected their pantheon of gods, their many, many, many gods, and instead said, we only worship one God, and he's invisible, and we don't make idols. And so they said, ah, you're an atheist. Interesting. They would even be blamed for natural disasters. 
Christians would be blamed. If there was a flood, if there was a famine, if there wasn't enough water, if there was anything, no matter what was happening, the Romans would say, that's the Christians. They don't worship our gods, and so our gods are mad. It's all their fault, and so they would take it out on them. They basically became social pariahs to Rome. And everything that was happening, they're, become, they're being persecuted heavily. And so John writes, in the midst of all of that, he says, I am with you in this. It's why I'm an old man sleeping in the dirt on an island. Because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. His role as a leader among the Christians landed him in this penal colony cut off from most of the world. And despite all of that, he continues to encourage them. Then in verse 10, he says something interesting. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is an interesting line because there's two things in that simple little line that we don't fully understand. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So what does it mean to be in the Spirit? It's the same kind of language that the Old Testament prophets used. Isaiah and Ezekiel both use this term, in the Spirit. And some would say it's simply just a way of saying, I was praying. I was praying, I was in the Spirit. But others would say it's something more than just a simple prayer time. It's more like a spiritual trance. And I know most Christians, you hear that word and you're like, I don't like that word. Trance sounds new agey and weird, and I, and I agree. But it's a word that's found in other places in the Bible as well. Peter, if you remember all the way back to when we went through the book of Acts, or if you've read through Acts, Peter has this vision in Acts chapter 10, and he says, I fell into a trance. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible because it's what I call the miracle of the giant pizza crust coming down from heaven. It's not what it actually is. It just says it's a sheet. But in my head, because I'm Italian, it's pizza. Okay? And all of the animals are on the pizza crust, and God says, eat it all. He says, no, they're unclean. He says, don't call anything I have made unclean. All of this takes place in a trance. In another part, Paul is in a trance in Acts chapter 22, and God tells him to flee Jerusalem because of the persecution that's coming. And so this idea of a prayer trance is weird for us, but it's throughout the Scriptures. Now, what does it actually mean to be in the Spirit? I don't know. Maybe it's just a simple way of explaining prayer. Maybe it's this trance. I've never been in a prayer trance but I, do I think that God could absolutely knock me into a prayer trance like that? Yes. But he says, I am in the Spirit. And then he says, on the Lord's day. This is another one. Similar to the last one, it could be a very simple thing. He could just be saying it was Sunday. It was the Lord's day. It's the day that we celebrate because it was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So it's a Sunday. But some scholars say it might be something more than that. It might be the idea that when God brings John into this trance, that he actually trans, transports John's mind into the future, into the distant future, to the day of the Lord. This idea of the day of the Lord is an eschatological, eschatological idea. That's a big fancy word for stuff that's going to happen at the end. Right? You might have heard that if you've studied 
anything about end times. Eschatology is the study of the end times. So this idea of the day of the Lord is that at the very end, there's this day where God will reclaim all of creation, where he will bring the, full, the fullness of the kingdom of God, and that will be the day of the Lord. And so maybe what John's saying here is it's, it's Sunday. Or he might be saying, I could see the end, the day of the Lord. Which was the answer? I don't know. Maybe they're both. Maybe it was a Sunday and the day of the Lord. I don't know. That'd be cool. Either way, it's a really cool idea to think about. But then John says, I'm, I was in a trance. It was the day of the Lord. And then he says, I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet. That's a loud voice. If you don't think trumpets are loud, then you didn't have a seventh grader like me trying to learn how to play trumpet in your home. My poor grandparents had me playing trumpet, trying to learn how to play smoke on the water in my bedroom. And I'm sure my poor grandfather was like, what have we done? And just so you know, I was not a good trumpet player. I was a ninth chair out of nine chairs. I was very politely invited not to continue on in band in eighth grade because all I ever learned how to play was smoke on the water on the trumpet. This is a loud voice. And it gives John a commission. In verse 11, the voice, we know it's Jesus. And this is the first time, most likely, that John has heard the voice of Jesus in 60 years. But it's not the same a little different. He hears the voice of Jesus and he says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. John is finding out exactly why he is here in this trance or in this time of prayer. And so far, John has told us what he has heard. But in verse 12, he begins to tell us what he sees. And when he turns, the first thing that he sees is seven golden lampstands. Now later, verse 20 tells us exactly what this means. It says the seven golden lampstands are symbolic. They represent the seven churches that are listed here. They represent the whole church. All of God's people. This verse is important for us to understand something. Verse 20 tells us the lampstands represent, they symbolize the church. So that tells us As we read through the book of Revelation, there are things that are symbolic in Revelation. Not everything in this book is literal. And this is one of the big struggles of the book of Revelation. Some people want to make the entire book completely literal. Some people want to make the book entirely allegorical and symbolic. But they're both happening. And so one of the struggles to understand this book is to figure out what is symbolic, and not everything is explained clearly like this. God doesn't always say, oh, by the way, the lampstands the churches. The stars are the angels. Other things we have to figure out, and we're going to continue to try to figure all that out as we go through this book. But we'll start here. Lampstands. What is the purpose of a lampstand? Light. Not a trick question, but the answer wasn't Jesus. Still kind of is. It is to bring light into dark places. The entire reason for a lampstand to exist on this planet is to bring light to a dark place. What is the entire reason for the church to exist? 
to bring light into dark places. It is a beautiful symbol. It's almost like God knew exactly what he was doing. He brings, and notice this, the first thing that John sees when he turns is he sees these lampstands whose job is to bring light and to illuminate Jesus. If Alliance Fellowship is not doing this, we are failing. Forget the rest of Revelation. Forget trying to understand the deep secrets of eternity in God's... If we're not bringing light into dark places, we are failing as a church. We are not doing what we were meant to do. If everyone who calls this church their home does not understand that that is the first goal that we have in our lives, then we need to reevaluate what we're doing. Are we, like a lampstand, illuminating Jesus and shedding light into the darkness? This single idea is so important for us as we try to even begin to fathom the rest of what's going on in Revelation. Because it's the, it's the basis. We are to be the light of God. Jesus spoke about this when he was walking on earth in his earthly ministry. If you remember his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he tells the people very clearly that this is their goal for life. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's incredibly interesting to me is that when John first tells us what he turns, he's heard a voice like a trumpet, he turns, he hasn't seen Jesus yet, the first thing that he notices is the lampstands. The first thing that he sees is the churches. I'm not ready for that yet, but you can leave it there. <laughs> it's interesting because the next thing that he sees is one like the Son of Man. This is a term that the prophet Daniel used all the time to talk about the Messiah that would come. And it speaks of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And so then in verses 13, 16, after he has seen the lampstands, then he begins to describe this vision of the glorified Jesus. Now remember, John knew Jesus. He lived with Jesus for three years. He's one of his best friends that he ever had in his life. But this Jesus is not the humble carpenter from Nazareth. This is the glorified Christ in his heavenly realm. And so he sees something completely new. Now you can throw this picture up. I looked for pictures of an artist trying to show you what Jesus looks like in this chapter. I didn't find a single picture that I felt like does even remote close to justice to this. But this one was about the best I could come up with. And you can see John there, just, just what is happening? And you see Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth and flaming eyes and white hair and all these things that we're going to talk more about. And just try to imagine the overwhelming nature that this would have on John to see Christ in his full glory. Interestingly, 
This is the only place in the whole Bible where we actually have a physical description of what Christ looked like. We have no idea what he looked like as he's walking through his earthly ministry, except for we know that he looks nothing like the pictures that we have. Because he was not a white male model with flowing, beautiful brown hair. He didn't look like that. He was a first century, near eastern, Galilean, dark-skinned Jewish man. And yet, even when an artist makes this, it still looks like, I don't know, Kurt Russell or something like that. Here's the description. If you go back to our, to, our, to our scripture for the day. He is clothed with a long robe and a golden sash. These are the clothes of a high priest. This represents that he is the high priest that we were talking about just a couple weeks ago. Prophet, priest, and king. He's the high priest. Or if you were with us in the book of Hebrews, all of Hebrews points to this, that he is the high priest. Hebrews 4, 14-16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in the help in times of need. And so John begins to see Jesus in, this, in these garbs that represent that he is the high priest over all of creation. And it says his, the hairs on his head were white like wool, like snow. This represents that Christ is the ancient of days. This is a term that prophet Daniel used all the time to speak about the Messiah. That he would be the ancient one eternal, full of wisdom and power, and his white hair represents purity and sinlessness and glory. There's all of this going on as he tries to take in what he's seeing. His eyes were like flames of fire. This speaks about judgment, that he will be the ultimate judge over all of the earth. It speaks about his eyes being all-seeing, that nothing can be hidden from the eyes of the Lord. And throughout the Old Testament, God would show up and he would show up as fire. Remember the burning bush that speaks to Moses. Remember the pillar of fire that leads Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, God is represented in fire. And here we have Jesus with fire in his eyes. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. This one is interesting because burnished bronze in the Old Testament was what they would make the altar out of. When they would bring an animal to sacrifice the animal, they would lay the animal upon an altar made of bronze. And so it speaks of the purity and the, the ridding of sin from our lives. His feet are made out of that. In his right, oh, his voice was like the roar of many waters. This is another line that's borrowed from an Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel. We'll talk about the voice of the Lord, like roaring waters. And I thought about this, like, have you ever been right next to a waterfall, a big waterfall, and then just try to talk to the person next to you? It's impossible. Nothing can cut through that sound. It, it fills the air. It's all-encompassing. And the voice of God is like that. It's, just, it's so powerful that it takes over everything. 
In his right hand, he held the seven stars. We talked a little bit about this last week. The stars, this is one of the most difficult things to, to grasp onto. It tells us that it's the angels that are in charge of the seven churches, but we're not sure does it mean literal angels who are kind of geographical guardian angels over specific church areas, or is he talking about the, the pastors of those churches? Is he talking about the Holy Spirit of God that reigns in that church? Regardless of what it is, it's telling us in his right hand, which is his hand of power, he holds all of the leadership of the church worldwide. He is completely sovereign over everything, over the leadership of his kingdom. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. It speaks of divine judgment over the whole world. It speaks of how his words are powerful. Hebrews, again, chapter 4, tells us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Corinthians, Paul tells us, The face of Jesus shines the fullness of the glory of God. Charles Spurgeon did a sermon on that verse, and it's one of the only times where Charles Spurgeon didn't try to wax eloquent. He just said, I have nothing else to say. He said, just look at that verse. I can't add anything to it. He says, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, is on the face of Jesus. And John finds himself face to face with the face of Jesus. And he's explaining all these things. And he says, the, the, the face of Jesus, the glorified Jesus, is like the sun shining in full brilliance. All of these attributes remind us that he will be the judge. He is the holy God who will judge the heavens and the earth. This is one of the aspects of Jesus that a lot of people want to ignore. They really love Jesus as a humble, carpenter, servant, prophet. They love the Jesus that just loves people and heals people and says kind things. But then you start talking about Jesus as a judge, as an all-powerful God. They're uncomfortable with that. It reminds me, I'm, I'm not telling you to watch this movie because it's crude, but if you've ever seen the movie Talladega Nights, there's this great scene where Will Ferrell's praying to Jesus and he, he's praying to sweet baby Jesus. Six pounds, six ounce baby Jesus. He keeps saying that and then his friend says, he's a grown man, he has a beard. And Will Ferrell says, I like my Jesus, baby Jesus. And this is what people want to do. They want to take one aspect and say, I like my Jesus humble and meek, and a servant, and he never makes anybody feel bad. I like that Jesus. And they want to ignore that the glorified Jesus is a righteous and powerful judge. They're uncomfortable with that. 
We can be very uncomfortable with that, but it's who Jesus is. There is one, more than one aspect of Jesus. Surprise, surprise, the fullness of God living in one human being is complicated. And he is a righteous judge. And so all of that makes sense in verse 17 when John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. As he should. As any of us would. He is seeing the fullness of the glory of Jesus and he is overwhelmed by it. That's why there's no artist renderings that are going to come close to this because it would be completely overwhelming. We couldn't even look upon it. We would fall down as dead. And this is the proper response to coming face to face with the glory of God. And this is a good measurement I want to give you just as a side note. If you hear somebody talking about God and they say that they've had a vision of God or they say, I have this deep connection with God, something deeper than, than you can understand, or they say like, oh, I'm closer with God than you are. They say something like that. If they say those sorts of things and it leads them to be puffed up or prideful or arrogant, they are lying. They are lying because everybody who comes face to face with God, everyone who comes face to face with the fullness of the glory, everyone who just gets a taste of really who Jesus is, is humbled by it. John falls down as though dead. Saul, who becomes Paul, falls down in the dirt on the Damascus road. And he says, who are you? Isaiah wailed, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Depart from me. Peter falls down at Jesus' knees and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You do not come face to face with God and walk away arrogant or prideful or boastful. You were humbled in the presence of the Almighty God. And despite all of that, Jesus responds as he does hundreds of times in the Bible. He says, don't live in fear. He puts his right hand on John. He says, fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus reassures John. He says, you don't need to live in fear. And he's not just talking about being afraid of him. He's also talking about being afraid of what's going on in the world of Emperor Domitian and the, and the pain and the persecution and the struggle. He's saying, don't live in fear because I am in control. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last and everything in between. I am the living God. I beat death itself. What do you have to fear? What if they kill you? I beat death. I am eternal. He says, and guess what? Are you afraid of death and hell? Guess what? I have the keys. I love that picture. Imagine you get locked up. Someone takes you captive and you're terrified, but then your friend says, I got the keys. We're good. He says, what are you afraid of? Death and hell? I have the keys to death and hell. They're nothing. Jesus is telling John, 
The, the main message today is the same as last week. He's telling John, no matter what's happening, I've got you. I'm in control. I am the Almighty God. You just saw a taste of who I am, a vision of me and my fullness, and you couldn't even handle it. You fell down as if dead. And he tells us the same thing. I am the Almighty God. And you can put your trust in me. Katie, you can come back up. In verse 19, as we're finishing up just this section, Jesus reiterates to John his commission to write down this revelation. Interesting too is in verse 19, is one of the only places in the Bible where we get an outline of a whole book right at the beginning. Verse 19, he says, I want you to write down the things you have seen. That's speaking in past tense. So talking about this whole vision that you just saw, chapter 1, write that down. Those that are, present tense, that's going to be the seven letters that he writes to the churches, the seven churches. And he says, and those that will take place after this, speaking of the future, that there are prophecies in chapters 4 through 22 is prophecy about what is to come. He says, I want you to write down everything you've seen, everything you are seeing, and everything you will see. And it's a message to the church to be encouraged. That I am the all-powerful God and I am sovereign and I have control and it's going to be okay because I have you in my hands. That's where we're going to go as we continue on this journey through Revelation. That's where we're going. I hope that you will continue on with us as we move forward next week. you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you are all of those things and so much more. Even as we try to read words that are difficult to grasp about you, even words fail. There is no language for the glory of who you are. So help us just to fall down at your feet and worship you as we should. But God, we thank you that you don't leave us there. But you lift us up and you say, Don't be afraid. I have the keys. I'm control, and you are my child.